0: Real challenges in situations like this is, uh, and, and Aaron uh, alluded to this, is the challenge of a, a both and response where a both and response is needed. Uh, in this case, both and meaning we want to be concerned both for uh, medical safety and we want to be concerned for relational safety. And it's easy to pit those against one another. In some ways, in our experience, their intention with each other. We really, we really wanted to pursue a both-and approach, and, and I saw that as well among the elders as John led, uh, is, led, led us into a discussion about this. I felt like the Lord, and the Lord alone, was the one who was able to make a both-and discussion possible. It's one of the things that I actually really, really appreciate about the Evangelical Free Church of America. So if you come to Grace, you probably know that Grace is an evangelical free church, and it's part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And as the Evangelical Free Church of America describes itself, its ethos, sort of it's what makes it what it is. One of the, one of the things that it, uh, one of the descriptions that it gives of itself is, is that the Evangelical Free Church of America believes in both the rational and relational, i.e. the head and heart dimensions of Christianity. John is concerned about that as well. And I've, done, I've made the same mistake twice now in a couple of months. I forgot my Bible. So I'm going to unforget that. John is concerned about both aspects. The head and the heart. The rational and the relational. The, the, the message and the mindset, we could say. He describes that to some degree in uh, 1 John 3, 23, when he says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, message, and that we love one another, mindset, just as he has commanded us. That's uh, true for the message that John has given them from the beginning. There's content and there's attitude. The same exact thing is true in marriage. You need data, if you want to put it that way. Some of you do, some of you really don't. You need data, and you also need affection. So, guys, you know, uh, if you're married, you know that you need some information about your wife. I mean, at the simplest level, if you forget her name, or more likely, perhaps, her birthday, or... Your anniversary. There's some real data there that's really, really relevant, right? If you know that your your wife uh, really feels like like she's like like she's washed out if she wears green, but she really loves to wear yellow, then you want to remember that when it comes time for Christmas, for instance. Data, and at the same time, if you get her a yellow sweater for Christmas and she opens it and she looks at you with like this you know me, kind of look, and you say, yes, I consulted my spreadsheet. It's going to kind of kill the mood, right? You, You need information and you need affection because it's a relationship. And that's, I think, John's point. When he writes, there's this blending that's even expressed in his circular way of expressing himself in which information and affection are bound up together because it's about a relationship about a relationship with Christ. Information and affection are not exactly the same thing. They can be distinguished from each other, but they can't be separated from each other. Because they can be distinguished, John can move back and forth between describing the mindset and describing the message, and in this morning's passage, he describes The message. He goes back to describing it. There are some things that you need to know about Jesus in order to believe in the real Jesus, in order not to have a relationship with somebody that you made up, which is not a real relationship. There's another message that people have begun to spread about Jesus. And as a result of that other message that really presents another Jesus, some people had begun to leave the community that John is writing to. The difference, the difference between these two messages starts with what they say about Jesus. And John's message, the original message, says Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh as a real human being. He gave up his life as a satisfying Reconciling sacrifice for our sins. So the pathway back to the love of God is found there and only there. It's not found in any other kind of Jesus. So that's where John is going to go this morning as he helps us to discern the content of messages that drive us either away from the true Jesus or back to him. This is in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. If you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, this is on page 1023. Now, as you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. This morning, I, I, one thing that I do want to do to help us to follow John's flow of thought is, is there is a structure that stands out to me in the way that John expresses himself that I think can be seen visually. So I think, I think we're going to have that up on the screen here in just a few minutes. I, my intent is not to reduce what John is saying to a structure. I don't think John started with like empty boxes and then filled them in. Um, but when, when John speaks, he speaks with a simplicity and with a richness that can be identified as we work hard to follow the flow of thought that comes out of John's mind. He's not merely ruminating. He's being very careful in the way that he communicates. And I think we can see something of that care even by visualizing the structure that John gives us. There we go. Okay, we've got it up there. The the text, I realize, is a little bit small. Um, So if this helps you, wonderful. Uh, Use it to follow it. If it doesn't help you, please ignore it. Uh, Just look at your Bibles. We'll do our best. What we have at the very beginning is really the, the, the big picture, the problem and the response. Where John tells his readers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. <clears throat> but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John acknowledges that there are those who come with this message. We, there, there are messages behind uh, what we're about. There is a true message, and that true message has real spiritual authority behind it. Even John would say, I, I don't come with the authority of an apostle who somehow earned authority by myself. The only reason I have authority is because it's given to me. And the authoritative message that I have has authority because it was given to me. It was given to me by God. And there are others who have shown up who, said, who say, yeah, we have, we have a message. Uh, our message is more authoritative than John's. Our message is God's message. So there are these two different messages. Both of them uh, are, are connected to authority, to spiritual authority. And John actually acknowledges that. He he says, our, our message comes with God's authority. There's The other message that makes Jesus out to be something less than what he really is actually has authority behind it. It's just not God's. It's spiritual authority, but it's not God's. It's actually uh, it's actually fostered by the, the power and the intrigue of the enemy, of Satan. And there are those who come who actually will say, yeah, we're, we're actually speaking with authority. False prophets, John calls them. And he says that when those messages tell you something wrong about Jesus in particular, then those messages are not neutral. Those messages come from somewhere. Those are messages of false prophets. So he says this is really, really important. When somebody comes to you with a message that answers the question of Jesus, when somebody comes to you and says, here's who Jesus is, here's what Jesus does, that's when we really need to pay attention. That's when discernment is especially important. Sometimes those messages are really explicit. Somebody will show up and say, Jesus isn't God. And all of a sudden, the, the discernment alarm should go off. Sometimes it's a little bit quieter. I want to look at both of those things this morning. But what we want to be watching for in both cases, whether it's explicit or whether it's subtle, is does this message give an answer to the question of Jesus, who he is, and what he actually did? So the response here is, because they're a false prophet, Because there are messages that can sound alike, their forms can be alike, don't accept all of them. Test them. Test spiritual messages to see if they're from God. So, how do you do that? John's response, John's test, is remarkably simple in one sense. The the actual substance of the test we'll see this morning on the screen is, uh, is very simple. There's, there's not that much to it in terms of words, and yet it's extremely powerful and relevant. So actually see, if you, can, if you can see the screen this morning, that you have at the beginning of the test, underneath the section that describes the problem and response, you have this sandwiched picture of the test itself. And sort of the bread and the sandwich, the top and the bottom, says, here's how you can know. By this you know the Spirit of God. And at the end of the passage in verse 6, By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. And then John gives the substance of the test. Here's how you can know. And how you can know is the way these messages answer the question of Jesus. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the test. He, he's going he's to expand on that test, give some markers for the different messages in the next two sections. But for now, that is the test. And so, it, it, it does. in one sense, it doesn't take a specialized mystical skill to do what John is saying here. When he says, test the spirits, uh, that that doesn't mean that you need to be watching for some mystical signal uh, from those who bring spiritual messages to find out, um, is this demonic or is this of God? He says you can actually tell from the content. If the message acknowledges who Jesus is, acknowledges Jesus according to the original message, then that's a message from God. And if it denies that message, then it's a message That is not from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, not confessing Jesus doesn't mean saying, doesn't necessarily mean saying Jesus never existed, it doesn't necessarily mean saying Jesus never died. It doesn't mean denying some of the historical facts about Jesus. It's really more a matter of, of denying the meaning of them, especially the fact that Jesus came to save sinners and Jesus did what was necessary to save sinners, that Jesus was what was needed to save sinners. That's why the Confession that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man and that Jesus died for sin is so crucial. And, and it's, it's those pieces that end up getting denied in, in what John describes as those who, who do not confess Jesus. Jesus had to be God in order to pay for sin. Jesus had to be man in order to pay for our sin. And we needed Jesus to pay for our sin. And in many ways, that's where the hang-up comes. That, that I think, is so often what's behind people's denial of one or other of these things about Jesus, that he's actually God or that he's actually man, is that, you know what? The whole issue of Jesus as the God-man dying for my sin says something about me that I really don't want to admit. I don't want to be the kind of person who has to need that. And so those things about Jesus end up being denied. It's not just the facts, but it's the meaning and significance of what Jesus did, in particular, as it reflects on me and my need. That's why Jesus has come in the flesh. He's come to deal with sin. And so some of the early creeds within the church that worked to say, there are some things about Jesus we need to make sure to deny and things we we need to make sure to affirm. One of those was the Chalcedonian Creed, and this isn't on the test, but it said something very, very important. It affirmed that Jesus was one person that had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and he needed both of those for us and for our salvation. Without that, we don't have a sufficient Savior, and we need one desperately. That's the test. That, That same test is just as relevant to us today as it was then. It was relevant for discerning the messages that John's readers were hearing. It was enough for helping the people at the Council of Chalcedon to figure out what do we need to make sure and affirm and deny about Jesus. What did he have to be to save us? It's enough today. Uh, It was enough in the early 20th century to discern the messages of what was called Protestant liberalism. I'm going to come back around to these at the end and, and show how this message applies. But it was enough. It's enough today. For discerning the messages uh, that you might find from time to time from Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses if they show up on your doorstep. This is the central question: who is Jesus and what did he do and why? Uh, it's also enough for discerning more subtle messages, messages that don't even come with a label, that maybe are the ones that are the most threatening for us spiritually and for those that we're trying to lead spiritually. This message is enough. This test of who Jesus is, is really what we need to come back to over and over and over. First, having laid out that very simple but very powerful test, John gives two markers, sort of in two sets. You see positive, negative, positive, negative. If you have really good color vision, you might see that the boxes here have different colors on them. Uh, if, If you don't, I really don't blame you. But they're there. I promise. <clears throat> so you have this first set, this first marker where each message is from. The deceptive message uh, again is not neutral. This the, the 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 spirit that does not confess Jesus. The spiritual message that denies him comes from the antichrist. This is the spirit of the antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John has introduced the Antichrist, this, this spiritual influence that, that agrees wholeheartedly with the spirit of the world. The world that says, as long as we have what is made, we don't need the one that made it. We don't really need God. And so, therefore, we don't really need Jesus Christ to reconcile us to God because we're okay on our own. We might need a boost from God from time to time. In the final analysis, we're good enough on our own. Well, the world, the world as we experience it, Um, especially as we see it denying the message about Christ, is a a big and scary place. So, what hope do we have? Especially when the world has the majority vote. And John describes that next. He he says where the denying message comes from. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's in the world. It's at work in the world. The world agrees with it. Then, little children, you are from God. <clears throat> and have overcome them, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So one message comes from the spirit of the Antichrist, which agrees with the spirit of the world. And John says, where, where is your, the message that you believe, where is it from? It's from the same place that you are from. You are from God, and have overcome them. Well, what in the world does that mean? I mean, John's John's readers don't necessarily look like the victorious few to the eyes of the world. They look like this strange minority. What in the world does it mean that they have overcome them? John's actually going to say later in the letter, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You've overcome them because you have not been overcome by their false message about Jesus. You've overcome them because you are holding on to the truth about the one who can actually save you. You're holding on to the one who can actually save you. So as you read John, one of the things that he's saying is, little children, beloved, you believe what's true and they believe what's false. In one sense, he's saying, you're right and they're wrong. And there is a gospel way to say that. And there's a worldly way to say that. John's saying it the gospel way. The worldly way to say you believe the truth and they believe what's false is a way that expresses itself in an ugly mixture of arrogance and fear. Arrogance because we're better than them. We obviously are because we believe what's right and they believe what's false. Arrogance, we're better. And fear because they won't admit it. And if if they, if the people who are wrong won't admit that we're right, then they're gonna ruin our world. They're gonna ruin our life. We either need them to admit it or we need to beat them. Arrogance and fear. And John, John presents the fact that his people believe what's right, not in a worldly way, but in a gospel way. They don't believe the truth because they're greater they believe the truth because god is greater because christ is greater and that's the explanation that he gives he doesn't say little children you are from god and have overcome them because you are greater than he who is in the world or they who are in the world you have overcome uh, overcome them for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world we're not the ultimate overcomers we are inheritors of the one who has overcome we can see that in john 16:33 this is one of the reasons that i that i believe that the books were written by the same person there is constant back and forth between the gospel and the letter john 16:33 jesus says to his disciples i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. All of a sudden there, we find ourselves in a place of real confidence. In one sense, that arrogant sense of we believe what's right because we're better, because we're smarter, because we're just plain more honest, that can never drive out fear. It, it, it can never make us really confident because if it came from us, then we have to guarantee that people will agree with us. We have to guarantee that people will cooperate. This undoes that. This, this, this marker that our overcoming is founded on what God has done in Christ puts us in a place of humble confidence. that can't be undone no matter how many people Right now, disagree with the message, no matter how many people misrepresent those who believe in the message. We have good reason for confidence that doesn't come from us, that comes from someplace greater, greater than the world, greater as we saw, even than our own hearts that from time to time will condemn us. He is greater. That's marker number one, where each message comes from marker number two is is the question of who listens to each message. So where does the message come from? And in a sense, where does the message go to? Where does the message register? And so John describes that next. They, those who believe this other message, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And you get this this picture of an echo chamber where people have, have essentially have made things up, things that feel very comfortable to them, and they, they tell each other and they affirm each other, and it all comes from, in a sense, from the inside, from the world, without any message from the outside, and the, the contrast that John gives, once again, is not you all, you've come up with a better message. They've got a message they came up with and they agree with each other we've come up with a better message and they need to agree with us john says we're we're not inventing we're receiving they they listen to their own echo chamber of of ideas that make sense within within the world within the fallen creation we're not inventing we're receiving from the outside this is not something that we would have made up because of what it says about us? Who would have made, a, made up a message that shows us to be lost rebels against a good God who had no good reason to rebel against him, but did, and who need God himself to come in the flesh and die in order to save us? That's the least flattering message that's ever been proclaimed in the world, and it is the true message. It had to come from the outside. This is truth breaking in. It's a very different kind of message. To have these two markers, where does it come from and and where does it actually land? Where does it register? And this is what describes this test of who Jesus actually is. I want to just give a few examples of, of what this actually looks like in discerning messages that we would deal with today. Now, one of them uh, it is, is one that's sort of old now, and, and that's one that a guy named Jay Gresham Machen, uh, who was a, a professor I think he was at Princeton, I don't remember for sure, really smart guy, believer, uh, had to deal with in the early 20th century. Um, and, and, and he he had to deal with this message that, that basically said, yeah, we believe in Jesus, we believe that Jesus lived, we believe that Jesus was good, and we believe that Jesus was, when it comes down to it, only a man, a good man, a, a, a good enough man that we want to call ourselves Christians, but a mere man was enough for people like us. That, that's all, all we really needed. Yeah, Jesus was real. Jesus was about love, and so therefore we ought to be about love as well. And yet, they ruled out the way, the one way that Jesus restores us to the kind of love that God is. The only way back to him. They rule out his sufficient payment for the punishment that our sin, your sin, my sin, actually deserved. And so J. Grish, J. Gresham Machin had to deal with that in the early 20th century. Honestly, if you want some good reading, he has, he's got a little book called Christianity and Liberalism. It doesn't maybe sound like a, a fascinating title. It's a very accessibly written book. It's, it's, a, it's a good book. might take some chewing on, but it's really worth it. And we'll find the same basic patterns there that, John's community had to deal with, that the council at Chalcedon had to deal with, and that we have to deal with today. Jesus as a mere man is plenty for people like us. We don't need anything more than that. We certainly don't need him as the Son of God and as the Son of Man to die for our sins. Where else do we see that? Well, in in a very obvious way, you might see that on your doorstep. Maybe even this afternoon, who knows? You may have somebody show up very nicely dressed, uh, very well prepared, um, may, may seem like a, a very nice person, and honestly, in real life, might very well be a very nice person. And they're going to show up with a message, and they, they may well represent what's called the, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. That's the organization that the Jehovah's Witnesses, the more common term, uh, that, that organizes them. Um, I, I worked with quite a few of these folks uh, for a number of years. It was an interesting experience. One of them gave me uh, this little book. I think I've, I've mentioned this before. I, I keep this on the bottom shelf of my library where it belongs. Uh, it's called Mankind, Mankind's Search for God. And the first half is basically um, a primer on world religions, uh, just describing how all these things miss the mark. And then all of a sudden, this, this person showed up in the 18th century who started to bring us back to the truth about God. Here's what's interesting about this book. It talks a little bit about Jesus. In one case, it refers to the death of Jesus, just, just by reference, and then there's a little note that says, the Bible teaching of the ransom, what Jesus did as they understand it with his death, and its importance will be clarified in chapter 15. And then I turn over to chapter 15, and there's one passage, or one one paragraph, rather. Uh, And even that paragraph itself does little to clarify what Jesus actually did when he died. There's a subject index in this book. And Jesus is in the subject index, but under the heading of Jesus, his death is not actually there. It's skipped. Not because it doesn't talk about it, but the death of Jesus is not central to this teaching. You know what else is not in this index? Sin. The word sin is not in the index. Neither is the word forgiveness. I think this is is crucial to what's missing in this teaching. The idea that, that when it came down to it, we needed Jesus to rescue us from something but the idea that Jesus need to, needed to pay the penalty for our sin is left out. It's left out of their message. That may be something, maybe a way for you to engage with folks who show up on your doorstep and just ask, can I know that my sins are forgiven? And see where it goes. See where it goes. Again, not because you're greater than the person that you're talking to, but because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world who says over and over and over in so many forms, Jesus as a mere man is enough for people like me. That's one of the places that it can show up. I think that the threat for us is one that doesn't come with institutional labels. It doesn't come labeled as Protestant liberalism. It doesn't come labeled as Jehovah's Witness theology. Uh, it's it's one that comes really without a label, and and one of the reasons for that is that our culture kind of, in some ways, despises labels, despises being uh, constrained to a particular system. But one of the places where we where we see this happen, where we see people say, "Jesus as a man is all that I need," Jesus to be, is in certain people's stories, stories of people who say, "I grew up in the church." And uh, I still admire Jesus. Um, I, I still think that his teaching is worth listening to. I still think that his example is worth modeling myself after. But I don't need Jesus as the one who died for my sin. The place where we see it, we, we see people who say, yeah, I grew up in the church. I grew up with that system, and I really don't need it anymore. I don't need Jesus in that way anymore. Sort of what's sometimes called deconversion stories or deconstruction of faith. And we see this over and over and over again, and it's something for us to to really watch out for. I think there there are two things for us to watch. Two things for us to be to be really careful with. Now, two things that mark some of these these uh, deconversion stories. One of them, one of them for us to be careful with as believers is the tendency to take things other than Jesus and make them into what makes us Christians or what makes us the right kind of Christians. It's not uncommon for people who are raised in a household or an environment where, where they're, they're told Believers, real Christians, make these kinds of lifestyle choices, and these kinds of lifestyle choices are not the kinds of lifestyle choices that are demanded by the Bible itself. These are the good kinds of people. These are the nice kinds of people, people who don't make these kinds of wisdom calculations. These are people who are evil, people who are bad, uh, people who who you, you should never listen to, in any way, and then people end up leaving and and going into another environment and realizing, wait a minute, first of all, um, I, I don't see where God requires these kinds of lifestyle choices. They're not things that I find in the Bible, and I also find people who make different kinds of lifestyle choices that actually are nice, smart people, and the whole system that I grew up with seems faulty to me, and so they throw out the system, including the way that the system describes Jesus. We're going to come back around to this. How do we make sure for ourselves and for those that we care for spiritually that we make sure that Jesus is the essential, that whatever else kids or others that we're caring for spiritually hold on to or don't hold on to, that they hold on to Jesus as he is. And that we don't tell them, no, it's, it, it's your political affiliation. Or it's your particular way of doing church. Or it's, it's a particular set of, of sort of daily habits that you absolutely need to do every single day that make you a Christian, that make you greater than the world. We want to watch out for that. One of the things that I think I've seen happen as people have announced a deconversion. I think has been behind that in some cases is somebody saying the system didn't work. I had this way, this way that was labeled as Christian, this way of doing life that, that, that other people agreed with as well. Uh, a system like a, a particular dating system, maybe a, a system that wouldn't call itself dating, a, a way of finding a spouse that says, here's the Christian way of doing this. And so, because we're good Christians, this is the way that we're going to do this. And then later on, look back and realize that, that that system was faulty. That system was broken. That system actually did some damage. And that was the Christian system that I grew up with. Again, there's, there's wisdom calculations in all the different system options for finding a spouse. But when we say, this is the way of being a Christian, We set people up, we set ourselves up to look back and say, wait a minute, that was broken. Maybe the whole thing was. And as a result, Jesus gets thrown out as well. How how do we, as believers, make Jesus essential? How How do we show to those who look to us, He is all that we need. One of the ways that we do that is by being careful about what we actually insist on. Now, as parents, you're going to have rules in your home. And that's okay to say this is the way we we do things in our home. This is what we believe is wise as parents. And kids, we're we're going to require of you, as long as you're in our home, That you follow the wisdom as best we can figure it out that we have as parents. We think this is good for you. And we want to be careful to make a difference between those wisdom calculations that we make as parents and who Jesus actually is. So that as our kids leave home, they are prepared with wisdom. They're prepared to look at the world in a wise way. And they're holding on with a death grip to Jesus. so that. As they see different things in the world that maybe make them recalibrate how they do wisdom decisions, the one thing they insist on holding on to is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as a man and he died for my sin. And I cannot let go of him. Here's here's one of the places really practically that we do this, that I, I don't say we personally, that we all can do this. In our homes and as a demonstration to other people, and that is with the confession of sin. You, you, want to, you want to model the gospel for your children? Well, do your best to live in a way that's consistent with the gospel, to not, to not sin. You know what's just as powerful? Confession of sin. When your children hear you come to them and say, what I did was inconsistent with the character of God, what I did felt right to me at the moment, and it was wrong. It, it was not okay. It was offensive to the character of God, and I was wrong. I was wrong to do that to you. The model that I gave to you, the example I gave to you was inappropriate and wrong. This is why I need Jesus. Will you forgive me for what I did to you? That's the gospel at work. That's the gospel at work in those who are not greater, uh, those who are in, in need of someone who is. Greater, when, when, when your children or when your neighbor hears you say, I was wrong in what I did. They, they get to see a message that's entirely different from something that the world would, made up, would make up. Here's somebody who's not making themselves out to be greater than me. Somebody who's saying, in order to be a Christian, you need to be like me. Somebody who says, there's somebody greater than me. Somebody that we can both trust. Uh, With all of our dysfunction, with all of our trouble, with all of the fact that we have not yet gotten this figured out. Here's somebody that I'm banking my eternity on, and I want to encourage you to do the same. It's a message of authority that didn't come from me. Father, would you give us grace to discern spiritual messages? and to be constantly on the lookout for answers to the questions about Jesus, even answers within our own heart, as sometimes the flesh will tug us back to a sense that, I think we can do this on our own. Help us both to, to, to reject that message and to rest in the true message that Jesus as he is, is what we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Man, it's too chilly to sing outside today. Uh, do we have a closing song this morning for inside? Okay.